Hello, and welcome to To The Point With Portland, a podcast for communications professionals that gets to the heart of the biggest questions in communications, policy, and reputation. I'm Megan Powers, Director at Portland, who oversees our U.S. office based in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm joined by Ali Velshi, host of MSNBC's Velshi and an NBC News business correspondent. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fickle U.S. media landscape. We'll dig into what really drives the 24-7 broadcast news cycle and the media as a mechanism for political currency. This is To The Point. Welcome, Allie. Before we begin, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about your impressive background. Ali and I met when he was hosting Ali Velshi on Target, a nightly primetime show on Al Jazeera America, where I was an interview producer. Uh, Ali had just come from CNN, where he was chief business correspondent, a CNN international anchor, and frequent co-host of the morning show there. He's a three-time Emmy nominee. Ali has been reporting from Ukraine and across Central and Eastern Europe during the Russian invasion. He's also reported from across America during the COVID-19 pandemic. He was on the ground in Minneapolis following the killing of George Floyd and has covered multiple U.S. presidential elections and major news stories around the globe. So all that said, he's the perfect person to talk about the fickle and unpredictable U.S. news cycle with. Hi, Ali. Good to be with you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you, too. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, you've been in the news business long enough to have seen it evolve to where it is today, or mm-hmm. some may say it has devolved, depending on who you ask. Um, but even the last several years, most especially the term of former President Trump, we saw quite significant changes to how and why stories were covered. What would you say, you know, is the biggest difference in the news cycle versus two years ago, um, or thinking about presidential terms in the U.S. even six years ago? Well, I'm probably on the side of people who say it's devolved uh, a bit, and I think some of that's been consistent over the years. For instance, one of the things that's changed, irrespective of this last presidential election and cycle, is that the cycle of most news stories becomes much shorter. Uh, So to the extent that there would have been stories in the past that would have dominated the news cycle for many, many days, more than a week, perhaps months, most stories now, particularly those of a fleeting nature, are really fleeting. And, And I say that because there were always stories of a fleeting nature, and usually they were inconsequential. But now you have things like school shootings or mass shootings that are in the news cycle for a day or two, or or major political happenings, which are, again, in the news cycle for a day or two. Now, that was all exacerbated when Donald Trump came to office, largely because the media has some obligation to cover the president of the United States, and he was generating his own news coverage, uh, largely through the use of social media, but he'd often do it multiple times a day. So there'll be a scheduled event. We, We joke often about Infrastructure Week. He, I think he scheduled four of them over his presidency. And literally within hours of the Monday on which Infrastructure Week uh, was scheduled to begin, where there'd be a, you know, a whole setup at the White House about speeches and things like that, he would tweet something unrelated, some other thing, some fight with somebody or some policy change, and, and the news cycle would move to that. Uh, thereby taking it off his own thing. And that happens a lot now. Uh, politicians are able to 
figure out how to redirect the media onto other stories. So where you used to have a situation where you turn on the news and maybe you turn on the different cable channels or the, the networks and you'd have different takes on the same stories, now you have entirely different stories. You have entirely different things that are covered. So if you watch certain channels, there's some stories that just won't get covered. Or you watch certain channels and they'll cover something uh, as if it's the biggest story going on and then you'll turn to another one and they'll have never done a story on it. So we're not only, we've not only shortened the news cycle, but we've so super curated what we cover to potentially uh, adhere to the, the tastes and likes of our viewers that you're no longer going to a, a general museum, if you will, for your news. You're going to some hyper-specific exhibit all the time. Uh, I'm not one of those people who thinks that's a good development, but you're hard-pressed today to turn on any form of news, particularly on television, and listen for half an hour or an hour and get some full view of what's going on in the world. We consume highly specifically now, and we produce highly specifically. And when you're speaking about how former President Trump may have changed uh, the way the media covered stories, and of course, the responsibility of, of the media to be following the, the president's day-to-day, -day, or in his case, minute-to-minute -minute moves, I mean, would you, do you also feel that during that term, or maybe just as the, the media, availability of media and certain technologies has changed consumption of media, has the app appetite of U.S. audiences changed as well. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the chicken is and what the egg is here, because obviously appetites can change based on what's available at the buffet, right? It may not be that everybody wanted it to change this way, but now that you know that you consume in little bits and on Twitter and on social media, and, and we have some sense that whether you choose to watch Fox or CNN or MSNBC, for instance, you're going to get different things. Um, it becomes self-fulfilling. So we say the appetites change and the audience wants this, but maybe it's because we gave them that. And what it precludes is the ability to give them something different and say, hey, maybe they'd enjoy this if we did X, because we've trained the audience that this is what you're going to get. And then you give them something that, in my opinion, might be more fulsome or more comprehensive. And they might say, well, well hold on a second. Where's my red meat? So I also don't know whether Trump is is symptom or cause of this. He was uniquely good, but it's not like he invented either social media or the ability to use it. He just did it more. He just broke all sorts of norms. Typically, presidents didn't communicate with their public or the media through Twitter. Donald Trump just decided he would. Uh, I, I'm one of those people um, who, will, who thinks that he is a masterful communicator. He did that very well. To this day, his ability to, to stand up and, and counter some allegation that can actually be proved is remarkable. So I, I think Donald Trump... Um, sensed that appetites can change very quickly. He sensed that people uh, would enjoy getting past the filter of the media, uh, whom many people have come to mistrust, and, and he's capitalized on that. I don't know what we're supposed to do about it. Are we supposed to say, that's how it is now, these are what the tastes are, and let's keep on going that way? Is there some sense that we should reset? Remember, cable news audiences, I work in cable, um, much older than than most digital uh, consumption audiences are. So do those people want a, a, a difference? Do they want to be communicated with in a different way? These are all really, really important pressing questions, both for people who are working in media uh, or those who are trying to get their messages out. We are in a constantly shifting landscape, and it's not clear where this is going to land.
And, and that speaks to what my next question was. I mean, when you and I worked together, a major driving point of, of what you wanted to do for audiences, and I know that you continue in your, your media career um, through your ongoing series, Velshi Across America, and just in your day-to-day work is talking to the, you know, quote, unquote, real people, the, yeah. the people who are suffering from the symptoms of uh, rising inflation or certain sectors of the workforce um, not being quite as relevant as they once were or facing other challenges. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I know, obviously, you're you're traveling all over the place to to cover stories on the ground right now in in Ukraine and in the U.S. too. But are you still getting the opportunity, either through social media channels or otherwise, um, to hear from from those folks and hear if they are they want to be hearing more of that and less of the back and forth over, like you said, with politicians clearly with an agenda coming on yeah. to talk about things versus what's really hurting them day to day? Or has it come to the point where that kind of is blending together for the, the media consumer too? Yeah, I mean, watching cable TV, you wouldn't think anything's changed. Or you wouldn't think anybody wants less of it because there seems to be as much of that as there ever has been, uh, this idea of having your your views reinforced by, by somebody on TV. Um, I, I still have the same uh, instincts to want to go and, and talk to people directly. I, I would say since you and I worked together in the few years it's been, social media has become more of a cesspool than it was, and, and it becomes very hard to find that kind of uh, meaningful discussion on, on Facebook. Uh, Twitter, you can still manage to find it, but I, I'm concerned that Twitter is basically uh, politicians, Washington people, and journalists all, and, and then extremists talking to each other. I don't know that the general population exists in uh, in a meaningful way in terms of having uh, meaningful political conversations on Twitter. Uh, I find myself turning to LinkedIn more than anything else, and those don't tend to be particularly political conversations. Those tend to be people posting interesting things about their their industries. Um, I am still going out and and meeting people. I'm doing that on a very regular basis. Just came back from Alabama uh, a couple of days ago to talk about um, abortion, uh, but I'm I'm going out and talking about current issues with Americans, and it is inefficient because it's travel and cruise and it's two-hour conversations that get edited down to 15 or 20 minutes, but it's probably more important than ever. And I only ever talk to six people at a time, so it's not, I mean, I, I can't make some argument that I'm really getting to know America six people at a time, but it's six more people than I otherwise would have been talking to. Uh, six people typically who don't have public relations uh, representatives, they don't have representation, they are they, they do their work on a regular basis without an aim toward uh, publicizing it. So it tends to be interesting. It's a little bit unvarnished, uh, tends to be pretty honest. And I, I think maybe it's my penance for being part of this cable news cesspool that created uh, th- this polarized environment that we're in, that I'm trying to have conversations that are a little bit more meaningful, a little slower, a little less emotional. But at the same time, Megan, we're in a world where there's a great deal of honesty about the injustice and inequality that's going on. So uh, the, the more you scratch, the more you find. Uh, it, it, you know, my talking to people doesn't make it any less painful or, or less real. All it does is make it less 
abstract to my viewer. When you, when you talk about abortion with abortion providers and speak about the specifics of what they go through and what they've been through, it's a very different story than talking about abortion as an abstraction that some of my viewers will never experience. So my, my goal here is to create empathy uh, and to remove abstraction from stories by talking to uh, what we call real people, uh, going out there and, and having conversations with people who are not typically invited to have their conversations in mainstream media. And I, I find that uh, instructive. I, I think it makes me a better journalist. It gives me better questions and tells me things that I didn't know were going on. Right. And it, it equips your audience with, like you said, the perspectives of six people that they otherwise, you know, right. a viewer in California is not necessarily going to understand the challenges that these six people in Alabama Correct. might be facing as a result of, you know, the removal of Roe or what they were facing before. Correct. Um, so, I mean, that's something that I personally really took away from, from working with you and, and that I think um, as a former journalist is, is so important. Um, but, but yeah, the reality is we're getting away from that. And as you said earlier in the conversation, a lot of that is just the U.S., and often global media landscape just moving so quickly that it that it's hard we're not to. Time. I mean, it's just harder to do, right? I mean, look yeah. at when, when we were working together and we'd want real people. Weirdly, when you live in New York and you work in media circles, or you live in Washington, and you work in media circles. How do you get that perspective? You know, where where do you look? So you've got to read local publications. You've got to know people locally. You've got to reach back, as I know you did, um, to to people you knew from your childhood or, or, or growing up. It, it's just harder to do than Googling someone, finding somebody who posted something, getting an influencer with a blue check mark onto your show. But the real story, whether it's abortion or civil rights or climate, it's in the nuance, right? It's in the thing that isn't the broad strokes. And so many people offer to come on my show to talk about, you know, Joe Biden uh, signed this bill or Joe Biden did this, um, so-and-so can talk about that. It's, and and I, I almost want to reach out and say, look, we, we don't have space to book your guest right now, but what I want is nuance. What I want is a thin slice of a story that individuals tell. Individuals who are not trying to propagate a, a political idea don't tell stories writ large. Everybody's got an uncle at, at Thanksgiving who does, but most people tell their story from their perspective or something about them or how they experience it or how they see it. And that, to me, that micro uh, view of it is more helpful in creating empathy. It's much easier to have empathy for one person with one problem than for uh, X percentage of the population who's experiencing poverty or X percent of the population who's suffering because of inflation or X percent of the population who might get an abortion, right? These numbers um, don't help. People's stories help. And I, I find that becomes the best way to enter into a conversation, particularly with someone who might not share the perspective or view of the person I'm, I'm interviewing. It's just harder to argue against someone's personal experience than it is to argue with their, their political views or the way they see the world. Right. And I certainly would say that by narrowing the scope or narrowing it to those nuances, you widen the lens of your yes. viewer, um, ironically. Yes, so, that's exactly um, right. What doesn't make sense that that would yeah. be the case, but that's exactly true. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of communications professionals um, and their clients, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, you know, they're not always quite sure of the influence of what broadcast media has today versus, as you were saying, social media, who, who's consuming it, who's actually active, who's uh, really engaged. As you said earlier, the audience at MSNBC broadcast is very different than yeah. who might be following on, on digital channels. 
um, especially now that each network seems to have several different uh, entities under under their watch. I mean, would you say um, today, what is the political currency, if you will, of a broadcast media interview um, versus tweeting on social media or or something of that manner? I mean, uh, to me, broadcast media is still so, um, first of all, it's easy to amplify, um, but still has has a lot of influence. But what would your take be there? Obviously, you're working in broadcast media, so. The, the amplification is the biggest deal, right? The, the ability to take it and, and get it out there into, onto platforms that actually, you, if, you, if you have an interview with me, and you are able to amplify that somewhere else, that'll be much better than the, the net viewership that you got from me. And my viewership is pretty good. But, uh, but the idea that you can amplify it and the, the prestige of it, right? There's a certain prestige because in theory, there were people like when you and I worked together, people like you who were curating that. Um, so someone has chosen this guest over that guest. Someone has thought that this guest will bring uh, viability or, or, or credence to the topic. So the idea that you've appeared on this television show uh, suggests that someone did their homework and thought that you were legitimate to have on there. And the viewer sees that, right? The viewer says, okay, well, you've curated it. Now, look, you and I both know that sometimes doesn't happen. That that uh, you you and I both know that there are ways to get anybody on TV, whether or not they're qualified to do so, and that all interview producers are not created the same. Uh, but that the the general public still views the idea that if you appear on a well-known mainstream media channel, that's a good thing. Number two, the the fact that the clip can be amplified that that's probably more important. We discussed that. And number three. Um, is the idea that you show up somewhere in a search. When, when someone's looking for you, um, they, they can look at a record of where you've, uh, where you've appeared to, to speak. And that does help because what it does is it suggests that you're open to accountability, right? So if you're booking a guest on my show, I'm not sure you're doing so so that they can be held to account by me, but you expose them to being held to account. So the idea that a person offers themselves up to be interviewed in mainstream media means they offer themselves up, particularly in a live interview, to be asked a tough question, to be held to account. And that shows a, a, a little bit of, uh, of fortitude because there are a lot of people who get interviewed possibly on more suitable, smaller uh, venues, digital venues, where there's some friendly connection between the interviewer and the interviewee, which never makes me comfortable because everybody wants everybody to get the right message and, and there's the ability to re-record answers and edit things and redo stuff. And I think ultimately people are going to start to see through this. So th there is some value in pursuing mainstream media. It is not the value that many people lead their clients to believe it is. In other words, uh, dollar for dollar, there's no dollars involved, but it, it's not ideal uh, in terms of distributing your product or service. It may be good in establishing your expertise, in, in letting people know, hey, you're an expert. I do it myself, by the way. If I'm looking for a service provider and they've appeared on TV or on some show, I'll, I'll look it up to say, hey, does this person sound like they know what they're talking about? Same. Yeah. I mean, I certainly am, am a big fan of uh, using using Google video to, to see, I mean, personally and professionally to yeah. find out more about people. Um, what platforms or how do you consume your news? I mean, I know it's across the spectrum. Hopefully as a journalist, uh, you obviously have to do your due diligence and 
sadly, in, in the U.S., there are kind of two sides to every story media-wise. Um, so you have to cover your bases there. But what's your, you know, top, top few ways of consuming the media? Well, um, in terms of methodology, I, um, you know, I'm subscribed to all the large mainstream media platforms. Uh, most of the stuff I do is politics these days or, or economics. So the, the top line stuff isn't usually as helpful to me. I, I consume top line information on politics and, uh, and economics largely because I, I'm sometimes intrigued by what somebody's hot take is. So a lot of a lot of these emails that you get these days from the major publishers are somebody's hot take on it, and I'm just curious as to what does that mean. So in economics, when when the unemployment numbers come out every uh, every first Friday of the month, I I still read what the financial houses send out because they're trying to send a one paragraph version of what that was, and I want to know what the person who wrote that thought the most important paragraph was in this very detailed um, economics report. So I, I read the digest versions of everything just to understand, does everybody, is everybody taking the same thing away from what just happened? Then I'll read the, the mainstream media articles. Then I'll read the more in-depth things in either journals like, like uh, foreign policy or foreign affairs or, um, or, or deeper dives from, from the New Yorker or the Atlantic. I don't always seek out another side to the issue, but if I'm not getting why there might be another side or why, if I'm not understanding what it is, if nothing that I'm reading is illustrating um, what someone who doesn't agree with this perspective would say, then I actively seek it out. Because I, I have enough of a sense of saying, this should be a little bit controversial. There should be another view to this. Um, what is that other view? Uh, so I, I, I tend to, through all of those methods, get my information. I virtually don't touch Facebook anymore. I still have an account. Um, I don't think I post to it anymore. It's just gross. Um, I, I, I am on LinkedIn a lot. Um, very little of it is relevant to what I cover because it tends to be less political and it tends to be more on the business side, but it's intriguing. And I, I like these ideas. It's very optimistic given the world that I live in because people on LinkedIn are always posting better ways to do things and better ways to get a job and better ways to get a raise. Um, I'm on Twitter a good amount and I, I do use it as a way to determine what's happening and what's trending. Uh, but I never feel good about it. I, I end up on the sort of what's happening on Twitter pages and then I get into some rabbit hole and then I'm two hours later and I've wasted, you know, two hours of the day that I didn't have to waste. So I don't have a, a, a clear methodology for how I consume. I do like to triangulate though. And it's what I always tell people in a world of fake news and, and misleading media, try and make sure you have a sense for someone might have a different opinion on this. So I'd like to consume it just to understand that it exists and what it is. I don't even, I, I virtually never give an eye when I'm reading something to whether I agree with it politically or not. I just want to get information. And I think that should be the main goal. Absolutely. Um, well, as, as we wrap up, I thought I would ask if you could describe the U.S. media landscape in five words or less, or we can go with one sentence. What, what would that be? I'm doing a haiku, maybe. Uh, I mean, it's it's broken. It's broken. It, there's. Uh, I say this as as somebody who's been in it for 30 years. Um, it is it is broken, and because I'm an optimist, I see that as an opportunity to try and unbreak it. But what we have done is we have contributed to the polarization 
of our society. It's not a uniquely American phenomenon because as you know, Megan, there's polarization all over the world, but it is now, we're now seeing what happens when you polarize people too much. You start to erode democracy. So as a person who's been in this business for three decades, clearly I have some responsibility in it. So I'm going to spend some time trying to fix it. And I've witnessed that you have been doing that. So I really appreciate it. That's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today, but that's also um, for selfish reasons too. I always enjoy our time together, Ali. Thanks for setting aside a few minutes for us today and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. It was fantastic. Always great to talk to you. I'm, I'm really glad for it. Thank you for listening to this episode of To The Point with Portland. Should you like to know more about what we discussed today, do get in touch with us via our website, portland-communications.com or find me on LinkedIn. You can watch Ali on MSNBC's Velshi airing Saturday and Sunday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and follow him on Twitter at at Ali Velshi.